So many years ago, I worked, I served with an organization called Jews for Jesus. Have you ever heard of that organization? Uh, they do marvelous, marvelous work. I would don a shirt that said that, Jews for Jesus. And then I served with them in Chicago. And I would find a street corner in Chicago, downtown Chicago, during uh, its heaviest time of pedestrian traffic. And I would hand out tracts, gospel tracts, but we called them broadsides because we made them bigger. And the reason why we made them bigger is that we thought people passing by in a crowd are going to be more likely to grab onto one if it was larger. As they went by, we could just put it in their hand, you know what I mean, and uh, increase the probability that they will accept it, and who knows, maybe read it later. And we tried to be creative a little bit to try to get folks interested, sort of like a hook to get them to take this track expressing a simple gospel message in a creative way, we hoped. And one of those tracks had on its cover this title. It said, um, you too can have beautiful feet. That's what it said. And it had some drawings of feet. You too can have beautiful feet. And it's, a, it's taken from a passage of Scripture. Perhaps you're familiar with it in Isaiah. You too can have beautiful feet. So I'm handing these things out to whoever wanted to take it and having conversation with whoever permitted me to have conversation. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye there was a man standing, leaning against a wall and watching me the whole time. I must be honest with you, I got a little nervous. You know, I got this shirt on. It's sort of a target. And I'm just out there handing out this stuff. And who knows what this guy is thinking. And then he starts coming over to me, and I'm getting really nervous at this time. And then he says, I have never seen anything like that. This is what he said. I said, what do you mean? He said, that is the best advertisement for your podiatry office I have ever. He said, he said I too am a podiatrist. <laughs> he said, where is your practice? This is the most clever marketing tool. <laughs> and I said, ah, it ain't nothing. No, I didn't say it. But I just thought, I, you know, oh, my goodness, I, th I think he sort of missed the intent of what I was trying to do, what that tract said just a tad bit. But uh, have no fear. You will not leave here misunderstanding that passage tonight because we're going to see it in the text before us in Romans chapter 10 tonight. You, too, can have beautiful feet. So we're in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, and you'll see that uh, phrase embedded in the text in just a little while. Here's what it says, Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they, if I were to ask you who the they was referring to, who might you say it is? Uh, Christians, someone says. Uh, uh, no, it's not Christians. Yeah, it's sinners in what particular brand of believers? Uh, not Gentiles. Yeah, so that narrows it down. But thank you for being willing to offer such erroneous responses. I really appreciate the freedom you feel to fail. 
No, see, the whole context of Romans 10 has been Paul uh, addressing Jewish issues. You'll see this in a second. It'll become clear. How uh, then will they call on him? Now, who's the him? You're going to get this. Yeah, this is the Lord Jesus. How will they, how will Jewish people call on the, the Lord Jesus in whom they have not believed? That's a fair question, you see. How will they? Now, why does Paul even broach the subject here? Because if you back up to what we spoke about last week, verse 13, he said this in quoting from Joel. By the way, in Romans 10, he's quoting like crazy from the Old Testament. Why? Because his audience are Jews. He's speaking their language. So back up in verse 13, he extracts a quotation from Joel, a prophet with whom the Jews would have been quite familiar. And there in verse 13, Paul quotes this phrase from Joel. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, based on that, he asks what he asks in verse 14. If it's true, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, then he could ask the question, yeah, but, but how will they, how can they uh, call on him if they don't believe in him? And, and then he says, how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And, and how will they hear without a preacher? See how he's backing things uh, uh, all the way back to the preacher. There has to be preaching. There has to be about the Lord Jesus. Then there has to be hearing, and then there has to be believing, and then there has to be calling on the Lord Jesus. Uh, Lord Jesus, forgive me a sinner. Be my Savior and Lord. That kind, of, that kind of thing. So here's the deal. It's real simple. If you're wondering how people get saved, God has very clearly ordained that in order for people to get saved, they, hear, they have to hear about the Lord Jesus, who is the Savior. You, you, so if you get nothing else about tonight, let's not make it complicated. If you want to know how people get saved, it's simple. They have to hear about the Lord Jesus. Now, it's not enough just to hear. I got that. But without hearing, nothing else takes place, nothing beyond it. I mean, if they're not hearing, they can't be believing. And if they're not believing, they can't be calling. You see what I mean? So it all starts with someone announcing a message that unsaved people could, could hear and then receive. In other words, the means of salvation that God has chosen, the means by which people can be saved is this. A person who knows the gospel must share it with someone who doesn't. That's how it works. A person who knows the gospel, that's good news about the finished work of Jesus Christ for our sin. The person who knows the gospel must share it with someone who doesn't know. That's how the process of redemption takes place. Now, God could have done this in any manner of ways, but I'm telling you, this is the means he chose. A, there's a preacher, then there's someone who hears what's preached, and then based upon what that person heard, they believe. And based upon their belief in what they heard, they call out to the Lord Jesus so as to make him their personal Lord and Savior. And then they are redeemed. They're saved. That's how it works. So the text says, how will they hear without a preacher? Now, what does that mean? Does that term preacher, is it limited only to those men 
who are called into full-time vocational Christian service and preach in churches Sunday after Sunday. Does it mean them? Yes, but it's not limited to them. It includes them. Now, how do I know that? Because the Greek word underlying the very simple word preach simply means to announce. It's not talking about being a, uh, an, an officially duly appointed, ordained, called, educated, and equipped pastor of a church, though it certainly includes that person, but it's not limited to that person. This is a calling on the life of anyone who has heard and believes the gospel. Anyone who knows the gospel is given the privilege and obligation to announce it to someone who hasn't heard the gospel. That's the sense in which this preaching is to take place. And the rhetorical question asked is, how can anyone hear without someone proclaiming and announcing the gospel message? Now, pastors do it Sunday after Sunday from behind a pulpit, which is wonderful. But listen to what most studies indicate. Of all those who accept the Lord as personal Savior... Only, not only, it's, it's a wonderful number, 7% of those who come to know the Lord do so through the preaching of pastors in churches on Sunday. Isn't that wonderful? 7%. So if you invite an unsaved friend to this church on Sunday, there's a strong possibility your friend is going to hear about the Lord Jesus. And your friend might be so moved by the Holy Spirit that your friend who has now heard from the preacher about the Lord Jesus may come to believe in the Lord Jesus and then find his or her way into the connection center back there and call upon him in a very personal way as personal Savior. So if 7% of all those who are saved are done so through the formal preaching ministry of our evangelistic gospel-sharing preachers across the land, if you do the math, that means 93% who come to know the Lord, come to know the Lord not through the wonderful preaching of our ordained clergy, but through one person who knows the gospel, sharing it with one other person who doesn't. That's how I got saved. One person in the military who knew the gospel so lived the life in front of me that I was attracted to it and asked him questions. And when I asked him questions, not before, when I asked him questions, he answered them by sharing his personal testimony and then inviting me to accept the Lord Jesus as well. Two weeks ago in that lobby, which is so beautiful, I sat across a little coffee table from a young couple and had the privilege of seeing the uh, female party of this partnership, this young gal, bow and accept the Lord Jesus as her Savior. It wasn't formal preaching. It's just three people sitting on our very comfortable couches out there. And this lady had questions, and her, her friend brought her. He knows the Lord. She didn't. That's a good friend, by the way, don't you think? And we just had a chance to talk and converse and it was just a wonderful thing, and of course, I was floating because that's the most wonderful thing when you get to 
introduce someone to the Lord Jesus. So, so this is talking about the fact that us, normal people, are the ones who God intends to use to lead others into the fold. So then the way of salvation is simple. It begins with preaching, then it leads to hearing, which leads to believing, which leads to calling. But Paul asks another question. He's anticipating all of the questions his audience might ask. He asks it for him. So in verse 15, he says, yeah, but how will they preach unless they are sent? By the way, this verse we're reading now has been almost universally taken by the body of the Lord Jesus as one of our premier mandates to do great commission work. This verse right here. This verse is like one of the premier verses to justify, authorize, and motivate us to participate in missions here, there, and everywhere. See, how will they preach unless they are sent? But I want to make this statement, and you're free to differ, uh, but I think I'm right about this. The original intent of this statement, how will they uh, preach unless they are sent, has to do with people being sent to share the gospel with Jews. That's the context. Now, you can challenge me, and I'd be glad to meet with you also in the lobby and lead you to the Lord. <clears throat> You, you have to examine the context. Now, I, I didn't say it only applies to the Jews, but I'm saying this great commission obligation primarily applies to the Jews. I'm not writing this. I'm just reading it to you. How will they, once again, who's the they? Read the context and you'll see it's unsaved Jews. Excuse me, not, not the they there. How will they, the, the Christian who goes with the gospel message, how will they preach to the Jews unless they are sent? You know what this means? If the gospel has relevance to anyone, it surely has reference to Jewish people. You see? Look, look, look. Let's say I have young children at home, and I want, to, I want to persuade them I am a loving father. But I don't go to any of their Little League baseball games. I skip over that and instead attend the Little League baseball games of the kid next door. Let's say I do that. If I did that, Neither my sons nor the kid next door will ever come to believe that I am a loving dad. If we take the gospel, which was offered by Jews to Jews about a Jewish Messiah, if we skip over them and take it to other people groups only while skipping over the Jews, how can the Jews ever believe that Jesus is their Messiah? And how can the rest of the world really believe he's relevant to them? If he, being Jewish, putting everything in a Jewish context, raising up Jewish apostles, sending them first to the Jews, if suddenly that's all over, how could the gospel message be relevant to anyone? Now, at a time like this, I wish I wasn't Jewish because you're going to dismiss all this by saying, well, he's just a Jewish guy. What do you expect? No, 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 no. I would like to be a Bible guy. I think I'm sharing with you what the text 
invites us to share. Why am I saying this? Because we're seeing an increasing decline in interest in doing Jewish evangelism. When there are evangelism and missions conferences, you get every people in the group who are considered. What happened to evangelization of the Jews? You tell me. After World War II, it has steadily diminished. After World War II, the church, out of sympathy for six million murdered Jews, got on the evangelistic bandwagon. But now there's great sympathy for Muslim people, as there ought to be. Please don't misunderstand. This is not an either-or thing. No soul is worth more than another. But now, I must tell you, forgive me, it's almost a novelty thing to embrace Muslim evangelism to the exclusion of Jewish evangelism. But I did not write Romans 1.16. Did you, did you know that? But I read it, and it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul says that. It's the power of God for salvation. And do you know most preachers end right there? But you've got to read the whole verse. To the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. You see what I mean? So... I'm grateful that our church supports all missions to every people group, including Jewish missions. I'm grateful that our church allows a guy like me and others to go on missions trips to Israel. It's only by the goodwill of this church that we get to do that. And I hope we continue, um, even if I wasn't here. It's a biblical mandate. It's not a Stuart Rothberg deal, for crying out loud. So anyway... How will they preach unless they're sent, just as it is written? And here Paul quotes that verse that I opened with. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And there he's quoting from Isaiah. Again, he's using Old Testament scripture, Hebrew scripture, because he's speaking to Hebrews. By the way, the context of Isaiah were messengers coming back and announcing uh, that the Jews are going to be set free from Babylonian captivity and permitted to go back to Jerusalem. And uh, Paul applies it to the sharing of the gospel. He says there's a bondage even greater than the Babylonians, and that is sin and its penalty. How blessed are the feet, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel message of freedom, redemption, forgiveness, pardon, adoption, through faith in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying over here. Now, folks, with reference to this phrase, how will they preach unless they are sent? I told you it's about missions and so on. This doesn't mean every Christian is responsible to go into the foreign mission field. Did you know that? You shouldn't feel unduly guilty if you're not called to go into the foreign mission field. But, Though you may not be called to go into foreign missions, every Christian is called to announce the good news of salvation to Jesus Christ wherever they happen to be. I must tell you, that's an inescapable biblical truth. Some special folk are called and equipped to go into foreign missions, for sure. But all of us are called to announce the gospel to those who don't know it, or who are misinformed about it. And though not every Christian, as I mentioned, is called to go into foreign missions, every Christian has the responsibility of doing what he or she can to send people into foreign missions and to sustain them through giving and through praying. And by the way, thank God for the missions outreach of Sagemont Church. I'm not saying this because we're deficient. 
I'm thrilled to say it because we're strong in sending missions, group, groups on short-term missions, supporting our missionary efforts around the world, here, there, and everywhere. I'm only saying it because I hope it never ends, for crying out loud. The Great Commission is the mission of the church. And so Paul speaks about that here in verse uh, 15. So it's the Jewish people Paul has in mind, as you'll see in verse 16. Look, however, they did not all heed the good news. The Jews. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? There he's quoting from Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed our report? In other words, Paul says in Isaiah's day, most of the Jews didn't believe. Paul says, and in my day, most of the Jews don't believe. Why not? Well, verse 17. See, faith comes from hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. You know that verse, don't you? That's a famous one. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. It actually means the word about Christ. That's what it actually means. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing about Christ is what engenders faith. So listen to this. When you tell someone about the crucified, resurrected Savior, when you're giving that message, your own words, you don't have to be professional at it or anything like that. When you're doing that, God is using your expression of the gospel to awaken faith in the life of the person who doesn't yet have faith. Think about it. That's why, again, Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of this message, the gospel, because it has power. It's the power of God for salvation. So there could be a very hard-hearted person. And when little old you, ordinary person, shares what the Lord has done for you and what you know he yearns to do for them, that message of good news, by the way, you then have beautiful feet, that message of good news awakens faith in their life. So what it says, faith where do you get faith? Well, it comes from hearing. Hearing what? Hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ. So if faith comes from hearing, and so few Jewish people have believed, are we right to conclude it's because they haven't heard? Again, the audience is Jewish, and Paul, anticipating that, responds in verse 18. I say, surely... They have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So he says, oh, maybe the reason why most Jews don't believe is that they have an ear problem. They have a hearing problem. They haven't heard this message, which changes lives. Maybe they haven't heard. Then he gives as a response a quotation from Psalm 19. You can read it. See, he's quoting from Old Testament. And the quotation is, their voice has gone, the voice of things in creation order. You know what Paul is saying? There's something called general revelation. Jews, Gentiles, everyone is without excuse because they can know things about God merely by what he has created. But then Paul implies, not only do the Jews have general revelation, on top of it, they have what the second part of Psalm 19 speaks about. They have written revelation. General revelation is God's testimony through creation order, available to everyone. Special revelation is God's testimony through Scripture. Only the Jews had Scripture. Israel's neighbors didn't have it. 
God gave Torah, the first five books of Moses, and Tanakh, the rest of the Old Testament, to the Jews. Paul is saying, what do you mean they haven't heard? Are you kidding me? They hear the voice of creation crying out, Israel, give praise to the Creator. Secondly, they have the testimony of Scripture. They have the prophets for crying out loud. No, the reason for Jewish unbelief is not that they have a hearing problem. It's something else. On top of it, in Paul's day, there wasn't one person in Jerusalem who hadn't heard of the birth of this special prophesied, predicted baby who would be Israel's king. That emanated from Jewish Scripture. The words of Jesus' teaching and miracles spread far and wide throughout Israel. Jesus sent the twelve and then more, seventy later, to every village in Israel, informing them that the king, he was the king, and his kingdom were at hand. He presented himself in Jerusalem during all the major Jewish holidays, Shavuot, Sukkot, Passover, and Jews were there gathered from all over the world. He, in fact, presented himself as the Messiah in Jerusalem at that final Passover through his triumphal entry through the gates of Jerusalem. After his death, burial, and resurrection, he was proclaimed to be the Messiah to Jewish people who had gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world. And when persecution drove the early church out of Jerusalem, the believers went abroad with the gospel preaching, primarily to the Jews. Where did Paul go first when he went to a new area? The synagogue. Not only the synagogue, but first the synagogue. Paul's point is, what do you mean they haven't heard? They've heard. It's inconceivable that the Jews living in Paul's day hadn't heard about Jesus. Well, they heard but they still rejected what they had heard. So maybe their problem is not with their ears. Maybe their problem is with their head. Meaning, though they heard stuff, maybe they didn't understand that stuff. So they didn't have an ear problem, but they had like a brain problem. And that's what Paul responds to in verse 19. But I say, surely Israel did not know. The Greek word means with full understanding. Surely Israel didn't understand, did they? And now he answers his own question. First, Moses, again, he's quoting from Moses, relating to a Jewish audience. Moses says, I'll make you jealous. I'll make you Jewish people jealous by that which is not a nation. You know who that's a reference to? Gentiles. Gentiles. Moses prophesied there would be a day when God would arouse the Jews to jealousy because Gentiles would come to hear of and embrace the Jewish Messiah rejected by the Jews. And God will use this to make the Jews jealous. He says, I'll make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding. I will anger you. Then he quotes from Isaiah in 20. Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who didn't ask for me. Look at this. Israel, how could you claim you heard but didn't understand? Good night. Yours are the prophets, the feasts, the temple, the law of Moses. Are you kidding me? You had the benefit of all this. You were spiritually attuned. You were the most spiritually privileged people on earth. How could it be that you claim you don't understand 
the word uh, about Jesus, but Gentiles. Not lower on the IQ scale, that's not what it means, but far less privileged spiritually. They didn't get the law of Moses. The prophets weren't sent to them. All of the practices in the temple, all of the feasts of Israel were just that, feasts of Israel. The Gentiles didn't have any of this stuff. How could it be that these Gentiles could hear and believe and understand the simple message of salvation in Christ Jesus, but you Jews claim that you cannot. You see, so Jewish unbelief is not due to an ear problem. It's not due to a head problem. You know what it's due to? A heart problem. And it really pains me to have to say that, but it's the truth. My people don't have an ear problem. They do not have a head problem. They have a heart problem. So it says in verse 21, as for Israel, he says, God says, all the day long, I've stretched out my hands to whom? To a disobedient and obstinate people. It pains me to read that and to declare it, but it says it right there. My people are disobedient and obstinate hard-hearted. We insist on obligating God to accept us on the basis of our own merits, religion, and self-effort. We refuse to humble ourselves and say, Jesus paid it all. I can't save myself. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, even religious Jews with all our traditions. They refuse to say, he's the way of salvation. There is no other way. God calls them a disobedient and obstinate people. Now, I need to tell you this. Based upon Jewish lack of responsiveness to the gospel, Christians throughout the history of the church and even down to this very day, very sadly, have said very harsh things to unsaved Israel to such an extent we really have to work hard to win the hearts of my people. Because though they're disobedient and obstinate, they have good memories. And they remember what has been said to them and about them by members of the church of Jesus Christ. For instance, let me give you a few quotations from church fathers who wrote centuries ago Here's one, John Chrysostom. He was like the prince of preachers. Golden-tongued, they called him. Lived in the fourth century. He said the synagogue is worse than a brothel. It is the den of scoundrels and the repair of wild beasts. The temple of demons devoted to idolatrous cults. It's a criminal assembly of Jews. A place of meeting for the assassins of Christ. A house worse than a drinking shop. A den of thieves, a house of ill fame, a dwelling of iniquity, the refuge of devils, a gulf, and an abyss of perdition. I would say the same things about their souls. As for me, I hate the synagogue. I hate the Jews for the same reason. That's one of our esteemed church fathers. I don't think that's going to work as an evangelistic approach. Peter the Venerable, yes, you Jews, I speak to you. I say, you till this very day deny the Son of God. How long, poor wretches, will ye not believe the truth? Truly, I doubt whether a Jew can really be a human. 
I lead out from its den a monstrous animal. That's from one of the church fathers. John Calvin, you've heard of him. With, in referring to the Jews, he says, Their rotten and unbending stiff nakedness deserves that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. That's John Calvin. Now, my people are disobedient and obstinate, but holy Toledo. I'm not so sure my people are rejecting Jesus as much as they are rejecting his representatives. Holy moly. That's just not going to warm up the hearts of people. That's just not going to work. Martin Luther, you've heard of him. Lutheranism. What then shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? Let me give you my honest advice. First, their synagogues should be set on fire. And whatever does not burn up should be covered or spread over with dirt so that no one may ever be able to see a cinder or stone of it. And this ought to be done for the honor of God and of Christianity in order that God may see that we are Christians and that we have not wittingly tolerated or approved of such public lying, cursing, and blaspheming of his son and his Christians. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed, for they perpetrate the same things there that they do in their synagogues. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds in which such idolatry lies, cursing and blasphemy are taught. Fourthly, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death to teach anymore. Well, it sounds like our mayor. Fifthly, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. You ought not, you cannot protect them unless in the eyes of God you want to share in their abomination. To sum up, dear princes and nobles, this is his recommendation to the government. You princes and nobles, to sum up, uh, uh, who have Jews in your domains, if this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one so that you and we may all be free of this insufferable, devilish burden, the Jews. Martin Luther wrote it. Adolf Hitler read it and did it. The Holocaust got theological support from Martin Luther. My people are disobedient and obstinate. The church of Jesus Christ is the same. It has hardened itself to the very people for whom the Lord Jesus died. Today you have something called replacement theology, which is exactly the same as what these church fathers were after. Because, thank you, because the Jews are disobedient and obstinate and have rejected their Messiah. He has rejected them and replaced them with the church. There is no plan for Israel anymore. The Jews are a forsaken people. That's replacement theology. But I want you to see this, and I'll close with this. We're still in verse 21. I've been emphasizing the character of my people as disobedient and obstinate, but please notice the character of God. All day long, he says, I've stretched out my hands to that very people. It's a picture of God, see if you can get the image in your mind, with his arms extended, the palms of his hand open to Jewish people. It's a picture of him beseeching them and inviting them, pleading with them to come to him. The church fathers extended a clenched fist. Almighty God extends an open hand. And what's more, this he doesn't do temporarily or briefly or for an instant or a while. Look, all the day long, 
You may give up on my people. The church may. These church fathers may. But the head of the church ain't. All the day long, I stretch out my hand. He knows who he's seeking to win. A disobedient and obstinate people. Though they are this way, he is a different way. Grace greater than everybody's sin. In their hard-heartedness, God has turned away from the Jews for now and to the Gentiles with the gospel. But God's favor to the Gentiles, don't misunderstand it, did not ever change his love for the Jews. He ain't done with us yet. Where else do you get the 144,000 in the book of Revelation? If God has replaced us, where did those people come from? They're not Irish. They're not Italian. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. That's in the last book of the Bible. If you can tolerate more of my rant, next week you'll see very clearly in Romans 11, oh no, God has not forsaken the Jews at all. The idea of stretching out of the hands is normally a reference to prayer. Did you know that? Somebody in urgent need, participates in urgent pleading, maybe falling to their knees, extending their hands, stretching their hands out to Almighty God as a source of help. It's a kind of posture some people in critical need adopt and embrace as they extend themselves to Almighty God. But what we have here in this text is not the Jewish people spreading out their hands to God. We have God stretching out his hands to Jewish people. And I want to ask you, how, where, how dare we do anything other than that? If he's stretching out his hands to those who are not even looking to him, how dare we turn our backs on Israel? Folks, uh, I'm so grateful for the guy who risked our friendship and told me about Jesus. How beautiful are his feet. He didn't do it right away. He developed a relationship first. On October 26th, we're going to find out how to do that. Dr. Darren Robinson's going to come. You've got to be here Sunday night, 5 to 7, 15, 7.30, with a break. Even the most timid and sheepish of us can learn the joy of sharing the good news with folks in relationships, in response to their questions. The fellow who led me to the Lord spent three months just developing a relationship until I burst and asked him questions. They were real fancy, like, what makes you tick? And then he told me how Jesus has changed his life. And a week later, I had many questions, and a week later, I asked Jesus to be my Savior. That was in 1973. I still looked upon, upon that person as my spiritual father. He's an Italian guy. Santo Stefano is his last name, St. Stephen. I called him Guido, which is Italian for guide. His beautiful feet guided me into a personal relationship with my own Messiah. And somehow when I heard the message, it engendered faith in my life. When I heard it one-on-one, because I never would go to a church. Are you kidding me? We don't go to church generally. So when I heard the gospel message, it just engendered faith in my life. And I knew in an inexplicable way that Jesus is exactly who he said he was and that I was exactly who he said I was, a sinner without hope. And in an instant, my sins were forgiven. I was adopted into his family. I became part of your family. 
and my uh, uh, eternity was assured. And I began the, uh, an adventure I have never regretted nor looked back on. And I've asked the Lord to give me the distinct privilege. He could do this through angels, but I tell you, he doesn't do it. He does gospel sharing through one person who knows the gospel to another who doesn't. And I'm so grateful that he's given me the opportunity over the years to do that. Now we leave the results up to him. I don't know what's on a person's heart or anything like that. We don't know these things. Ours is just to share the good news as we have opportunity. Folks, don't leave out my people. Don't leave out my people. It's happening. Support of Jewish missions is drying up. <laughs> Interesting. Those who do missions work for the Jews are struggling for support. What in the world happened? I guess we need another Holocaust <laughs> to get the church to realize, don't leave us out. If the gospel is not most relevant to us, how could it be relevant to anyone else? And by the way, when a Jew gets saved, we are not better than anyone else. I mean, Harry, where's Harry? You may think you are, but maybe you are Harry, but I'm not. No, we're not better than anybody else. But when a Jew gets saved, really, really big things happen. Why? It validates the word of God. It means he's kept his promise to Jews. And if he's kept his promise to Jews, he'll keep his promise to Jews. You see what I mean? That's the deal. That's kind of cute, don't you? Yeah. I'm so looking forward to October 26th. I'm going to be 65. I've known the Lord since 1973. Sometimes I spend so much time around church people, and though I love it, I hope I'm not forgetting about soul winning. You know what I mean? I'm looking for a shot in the arm. I'm looking for some practical instruction. I'm looking for incentive to be an ambassador for Christ. Do the work of an evangelist. That's what it says. We don't have to have the gift of evangelism. That's our privilege and calling. How will they hear unless somebody preaches? Lord Jesus, your ways are, are really quite remarkable. With all due respect, I don't know if we would have put so much confidence in us to win a lost world, but you have. You have given us such a marvelous calling, ambassadors of Christ. You've entrusted to us the most marvelous message, a message of salvation, the gospel message through faith in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, God, in the midst of all that's going on, diseases and economic stuff and computer hacking and all the rest, oh, God, let us not be distracted from, well, the main thing, and that is to tell lost people about you, the Savior, that some more might be saved. Would you make our church, we're already passionate about the gospel, would you make us absolutely out of control about it? And Lord Jesus, make sure we don't leave out any people group. For the gospel is the way of salvation to all who believe, Jews and Gentiles. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to save us. This we pray in your most precious name. Amen.